Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. That was amazing. Well, are you guys, you guys well today? Come on, have it over here. Are you guys well? You guys doing well? Um, go Seahawks. Amen. Come on, Seahawks. Uh, you guys know the drill. Turn to your neighbor. Uh, tell them how much you love them. Uh, slap their hands softly and tenderly. Tell them how much you love them. Uh, it's good to be in God's house. And man, I'm so glad you're here. Turn to your second choice. And um, you, ah, what should we go? Go Cowboys. Let's just do it. All right. Come on, tell them. Just let's do it. Come on. Did you do it? Turn to your second. Say it with, with full of, in faith, with conviction. Go Cowboys. Uh, well, we got a special, before I get into uh, our word this morning, we, uh, we want to honor someone really special. Uh, he's like my little bro, um, but uh, he's absolutely amazing, and I'm just so proud of him. He uh, travels the world. He's, uh, he's our youth pastor. He's an exceptional job um, pastoring people. He's an incredible communicator, and we're so blessed to have him. And it was his birthday when... Friday, my mind, come back to me, my mind, come back to me. But uh, I love you, Mark, and uh, I want Mark to come up, and I want him to sing to himself, happy birthday. Can I get a witness? I'm kidding. We won't, we won't do that. Do you want me to sing happy birthday? No, I'm not going to do it. All right, Mark, Francie, I want you to stand. We love you so much. Nope, stand. You stay standing. And uh, church, on the count of three, let's sing happy birthday. Uh, one, and uh, two, and a three. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Stand up. Who you. I love it. I love you, Mark. You're the best, seriously. Um, well, I'm glad you made it here today. If you could turn your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 4, and uh, we're just going to read, actually in a little bit, we're going to read uh, out of the book of Philippians, obviously. Uh, we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to go to uh, verse 9. Uh, but before I do that, I want to talk just a little bit about uh, peace. Paul actually maps out how we enter into God's peace. Last week, we talked about how the world, it feels like the world is defined by anxiety. Um, there's, we mentioned this, uh, and I, I did some research. I think it was USA Today article about how um, it's an all-time high. People are downloading stress apps, worry apps, trying to mitigate all the worry that they're experiencing. So it's an all-time high. Uh, Americans, I think it's, it's pretty obvious, pretty self-evident, that North Americans, their way of life, our way of life is dominated by fear, anxiety, and not enough. Like everyone wants to be taller, right? Everyone wants to be a baller. Everyone... Everyone wants more cowbell, right? We want, we, we want more stuff. And the irony is we have so much, and yet we still stress about so much. And so we're, we're going to be talking about, okay, how do, we get, um, how do we get our way into, or how do we practice our way into the peace of God? How do we, how do we deconstruct worry uh, and fear and scarcity and not enough in our lives. And Paul gives us a map in Philippians chapter 4. Before I do that, how many parents do we have here this morning? 
Okay. Uh, how many of you love Christmas? Love Christmas. It's funny, as, as parents, we have expectations, right, for our kids. Christmas morning, when they open up their gifts, our expectation is that when the kids see what they received, that they should kind of freak out. Right? I want them to, be a, I want them to go a little psychotic with joy, right? I want them to do the chicken dance. I want them, I, I want, I want, I want them to cry. I want them to cry tears of joy. Can I get any man? I just, and maybe that's weird. Am, am I like a little bit off? But I just have expectations. I think, man, when they, when they open up their gift, they see what they've received, I think there should be some joy. I think it's only appropriate. Do a chicken dance, right? Do something. Go, you know, run upstairs and cry and come back down. And my daughter has the cutest, like, victory dance. Like, she just puts her arms in the air. She closes her eyes. And she just, like, pogos up and down. I just... I think that's appropriate. Can I get an amen? And uh, I think what, what Paul is saying, when we find in Philippians chapter 4, is something, something similar to, uh, uh, to what we're talking about. When we open up our gifts at, at Christmas, I think it's only appropriate to be filled with joy and to be filled with peace. Can I get an amen? Uh, if our kids have a sour look or maybe they're a little bit depressed, uh, they have a problem with reality, Right? have a problem with reality. Well, I, what Paul says in uh, verse 4 of chapter 4, he, he says, okay, guys, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, again, I will say rejoice. I'm going to read this again, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So Paul is mapping out how we enter into the peace of God. How many of you want more of God's peace this year? So rejoicing is just basically, it's an appropriate response to um, a gift, right? So Paul says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So it's cast in the imperative. We talked about this last week. Uh, but it has this con continual sense. There's no expiration date on this command. Paul did not say, okay, I want you to like, when you feel like it on Thursdays, like Thursday night football, right, you can rejoice uh, he doesn't say it like on Sundays you can rejoice. No, he, he casts um, this rejoice command in a continual sense. It's like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Rejoice. And then again, I want you to rejoice. So why would Paul say this? As Americans, I think this is kind of, it, it feels counterintuitive. Because many of us are like, we, we want to bite back at this because we're like, well, Chris, what if I don't feel like rejoicing today, right? Let me just say this really quick. Culturally, American selfhood has been radically uh, defined or redefined. Uh, so what we have now is the self. Everyone say the self. The self has been given ultimate authority. So what that means is how we feel for many Americans is our gauge to truth. So we're, we're, not just, we're not just led by our feelings. We've ascribed authority to how we feel. So feelings, Americans, we, just, we live by our feelings. Uh, we try to feel our way through life because we have just assumed that the way into truth or in the way into satisfaction or the way into like self-significance is through how we feel. So if, if that's kind of like our way of thinking, then Paul is going to feel really antiquated because he says rejoice. He goes, and, and what he's essentially saying is that you can't rejoice if you're building your life on how you feel. 
Your feelings are not a firm foundation. Can I get an amen? I say this all the time, but feelings are like hurting a bunch of cats, right? They're not going to listen to you. And where did cats come from? I don't know. We have no theological justification for cats, right? But feelings can be all over the place. Like, we experience this spectrum of emotion. And if we want to enter into God's peace, we certainly cannot live by how we feel. You can't build your life. You can't enter into the peace of God. You can't enter into the joy and the flourishing that Jesus has for you if you build your life on how you feel. The reason why Paul says and casts rejoicing as a command is because we don't build our life on our experiences, our circumstances, our family tree, our genetic makeup, or how we feel. We build our life on the historical victory of God over all human corruption, over every sham authority in our world, over everything that has spoiled God's beautiful creation, we are celebrating, and this is the reason why we can rejoice, is because we're celebrating that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, death itself has been swallowed up in the victory of God. Radical evil, come on, has been defeated. So when, when the historical victory of Jesus over all the powers, over death itself, over every addiction in your life, over all the shame that you've experienced, all the guilt, all the dehumanized things that we've colluded with, when that is our starting point, that Jesus has won the victory over every sin, every act of evil, and all human corruption, the Satan himself, if that is our starting point, then every single day we can rejoice and we can celebrate. It's only appropriate. And Paul, I think he's comparing, he's talking to the Philippians, and I think he's doing kind of like a little comparison here. In this ancient like Mediterranean world, pagans, uh, their life was filled with festivals, festivals that celebrated and honored their gods. The problem was the gods were capricious and temperamental and uh, they didn't know if they were eminent or transcendent, they were involved or not. And so they would put on these festivals and you could feel, everyone say feel. You could feel the joy in the streets. Pagans would put on these elaborate ceremonies honoring their gods. And I think what Paul is saying is, guys, okay, so if the achievements of Jesus have brought about the victory of God over all evil, shouldn't we as Christians outdo the pagans when it comes to joy? I thought I would get a better amen at that. Shouldn't we outdo those who practice joy and they honor gods and they're not quite sure where they stand with? Shouldn't we, in light of the achievements of Jesus, who won the victory over death itself, who came back from the dead, who undid, right? That's not even a word, but just go with me. Like entropy and corruption. Undid it all, right? And won and defeated all the powers. Shouldn't we take our joy out into the streets and celebrate like Christmas morning? Shouldn't we be a little bit like, I mean, shouldn't we go a little bit psychotic with joy? Right, that should be our response. 
That should be our response. And let me just say something as a corollary to joy. It's, it's peace. We find in Luke chapter 2, we read it last week, and, and we read it in our worship a little bit earlier. But the, the angels come on the scene in Luke chapter 2, and they announce peace to the earth, goodwill towards all men. Peace, and we, we've caricatured peace as like, like this subjective sense of well-being, right? And there's a spectrum of peace. Some of you, peace for you, like your happy place, is like listening to Bean Crosby, his soothing voice, right? Getting a blanket, uh, watching White Christmas, drinking like eggnog latte, the snow falling. That's like your, that's like your happy place. Some of you, it's karaoke. Doesn't even make sense. You love embarrassing yourself in front of everybody. Maybe it's a dance party. I don't know what you're like, your happy place or your place of peace, which we just assume is like a subjective thing. It's like a warm glow. Or it's this warm sentimentality that we experience. Well, peace really doesn't start with how you feel. Peace, biblically, we got to look at peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not a warm glow you feel deep down inside your soul. When you watch, like, Anna Green Gables, right, and you're sipping on some tea. No, peace is God being present with us. But the Christmas story is, makes it very clear, and we find this in Luke chapter 2, that this peace is intimately associated with the victory of God. In other words, peace is what you experience when God wins the victory over everything. So this last year, my boys, uh, they, they played football. And it's funny, like game day, uh, they probably didn't feel anything, but I felt so much anxiety, right? We would practice all week, and uh, I would get them ready, prepared for their Friday night game. And I'd wake up in the morning on Fridays, and, man, I got butterflies uh, in my stomach. I'm a little bit nervous. You know, my, I want my boys to, like, at least improve, you know, uh, from week to week. And so we, we come to game day, and I remember I would just like, my wife actually had to have a talk with me after one game and said, uh, Chris, you're a pastor. You need to act like it, okay? <laughs> you need to chill. You need to relax. And so I, you know, I, I took her advice, but there was like, for a couple games, I'm pacing sideline. I'm glaring at my boys because they're not like paying attention. They're five, right? They're six. Um, but it was amazing when we would win, right? We win the victory. We beat like the Dolphins or whatever, uh, or the Redskins. Uh, I remember uh, that feeling afterwards of, of winning uh, the game. And it's, it's funny, I kind of live vicariously through my boys now. Uh, don't judge me, pray for me. Can I get an amen? But peace is what you experience after you get a victory, Peace is not something that you subjectively like navigate through in life. Peace is the result of something, something happening, right? Peace biblically is connected to the radical victory of God over the powers of this present darkness. So we're gonna build our life on that foundation Gosh darn it, I'm going to build my life on not how I feel. I'm not going to construct my psychology, sociology. I'm not going to raise my kids based on how I stink and feel. 
I'm going to raise as a Christian and as a pastor. I am going to build my life. I'm going to construct my life, not on a, a weak foundation of feelings and emotions and circumstances. I'm going to build it on the historical achievement and victory of God in our world. And that is why we can rejoice even when we don't feel like rejoicing. It's why we can celebrate the goodness of God. And then in verse 5, Paul writes, Let your reasonable, reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. And then he says in verse 6, Do not be anxious. Turn to your neighbor and say, Do not be anxious. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Everyone say, Everything. Come on, say it again. In everything. Come on, say it again. In everything. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious. How in the heck do you practice the art of not being afraid? Have you tried not to be afraid? And the more you focus on not being afraid, the more afraid you become. Right? How do you, how do you deconstruct fear and worry? Um, Paul is making it very clear, and this is cast as, as an imperative or a command, don't be anxious. As I mentioned before, um, the pagan way of life was dominated by anxiety. They, and the reason why is they never knew where they stood with the gods. The gods were temperamental. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, builds an argument. I love this. He builds an argument that anxiety is actually a pagan emotion. He, he invents a word. No one in the, in the ancient Near East used this word. We were pretty convinced, scholars are pretty convinced, that Jesus invented this word called little faiths. And in Matthew chapter 6, he turns to his disciples and he says, why are you guys little faiths? Don't be anxious. Don't worry about tomorrow. And he builds this argument. And he goes, the reason why you don't have to be anxious about tomorrow, the reason why you don't have to be anxious about your marriage, the reason why you have to worry about your kids or your money or your retirement or how you're going to make it or do, do I have enough uh, strengths to uh, survive in this world, the reason why you don't have to worry about any of that stuff is because your starting point is that God is not absent from this world. So what Jesus essentially says is the cosmos, everyone say the cosmos, the cosmos or creation is filled with, or we'll say drenched with the affectionate generosity of God your Father. He basically says the reason why pagans, their life is dominated by anxiety is because they start with the belief that God is absent from this world. Jesus says, okay, we're going to start from a different assumption. Our belief is that God is intimately involved in this world. Our assumption or our belief is that the Father will supply our needs according to his riches and glory. We're going to build from an assumption that his grace is sufficient for us and his strength is made perfect even in our weakness. That this world, and this is the belief of Jesus and early Christianity, this world is flooded with the affectionate provision and generosity and love and goodness and beauty and wisdom of God the Father. So if that's your starting point, God has flooded the cosmos with his radical goodness, then why in the heck, Jesus didn't say that, these are my words, would you worry about tomorrow? 
And then what Jesus says to his disciples is, you're filled with little faith. Little faiths, right? So how do we move into the peace of God? How, how do we not be anxious? Because what Jesus and what Paul are saying is not that if we're followers, followers of Jesus, we'll never experience anxiety or fear, right? We all experience fear and anxiety. I, I think the goal here that what Paul is saying in, in verse six, do not be anxious, I think that's kind of the goal of, of a Christian. Um, but I also know that uh, we need to be honest, that there are days that our hearts are gonna be filled with anxiety. We're, we're gonna worry. And I think what the tendency is for, for many Christians is that when they worry about something, they automatically assume that they're less of a Christian. Let me just debunk that myth. You're not less of a Christian because you worry. I worried this week about stuff, and I had to bring that worry to God. What, what Paul and what Jesus is saying when they say, do not be anxious, do not worry, is first we need to start with the belief that God is going to provide for our needs, number one. But number two, what they're saying is that yes, you'll experience fear, and yes, you'll experience emotion because you're human, but you don't want to stay there. You don't want your life to be defined by worry or scarcity or being afraid. Can I get an amen? So do not be anxious. How do we not be anxious? Well, we gotta take everything that matters to us and we gotta present it to God in prayer, in supplication, with thanksgiving, and then guess what? We gotta leave it there. We gotta present every fear. This is how you deconstruct worry, right? You gotta present every fear, every worry to God, your Father who loves you, and then you gotta stinking, I don't know why I'm talking like this this morning, but you gotta stinking leave your fear with God himself. It's funny, I, um, uh, my cars, I don't know what it is. It's like a demon in the, in the tires or something. I get flat tires all the time. And so about a month ago, um, got a flat tire. And because I'm mechanically challenged, I asked a buddy of mine to come over and help me. And we, we spent about two hours in the rain trying to fix a tire. And it wasn't totally our fault. It was mostly my buddy's fault. Kidding. Um, but it, he, he helped me. We, put, we finally put on the spare on the tire and then eventually had to take it to the tire shop. And so I remember went to the tire shop, and uh, this is kind of the first time that I've done this, and I went in and wasn't quite sure um, what I was supposed to do, but I just explained the situation. And I, I quickly realized as I walked into that tire shop that there's an unspoken rule. You know what that is? They don't need my help. Right? They don't need my help. Nor do they need my advice. Like, I can talk tire, Right? Like, you know, it's like it hit a threshold. There's like a grade five tear. I think you need to check like the tire dimensions. Like I could probably talk tire, um, but I'm, when it comes to like fixing stuff, I'm utterly helpless, right? And so they don't need my help. They don't need me fussing over how they're fixing the tire because they're the experts. 
I'm not. And so I, I remember as I, I think I signed my name and they started getting to work on my car. And uh, I, I had to ask a question because I wasn't quite sure what I do, what, what I was supposed to do. And so I asked him, okay, what do I do now? And the guy looked at me like little boy dum-dum. <laughs> he gave me the look. He's a big, tall guy, kind of intimidating. And he goes, man, you're, he felt like he was like looking at me glaring like you, you're a little boy, right? And he says, well, what you can do in a condescending voice, you can go get coffee. And I just felt like, oh, so you want to fight me now, right? Let's go. I see, right? And so uh, I realized quickly, these guys don't need my help at all. All I need to do is to drop off my car and leave it with them and go to coffee and actually have two hours of free time. What is that, right? And read a little bit. And then when the car's fixed, I can come back and drive it off the lot, right? What's, what's funny about so many Christians is that, number one, when we come to Jesus, we'll, we'll present some of our concerns. And then it feels like, and I've done this before, later in the day, I will start thinking about what we already gave to Jesus. And, like, we pick it back up. What Paul is saying is this is what you need to do. If you want to deconstruct worry in your life, you got to present every issue, every concern, every worry, every fear. You give it to God in prayer and supplication with a little dose of thanksgiving. I thank you, God. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how we're going to figure out this, the, the place seating at our, at our work party, Rico's coming in, he disrupts everything, right? I don't know how to figure out about my health. I don't know how to figure out this solution in my life, but I'm just presenting it to you. I know you've helped me in the past. I know you're a good father, and I know you will supply uh, for my needs according to your riches and your glory. And when you do that, you just leave your problems with God. Why? Because he's the expert. He doesn't worry about tomorrow. Can I get an amen? He doesn't worry about your future. He's in charge. Jesus is in heaven, God's space. And he's ruling over creation. And he's moving your life, your family, creation itself, the United States of America, towards his intended goal. The market forces are not in charge. The president of the United States is not in charge. Come on, the powers to be that want to carve up the world, they're not in charge. Jesus is taking creation as an unfinished project, and he's moving it along through one act after another of divine new creation towards his intended goal of new heavens, new earth. And when you realize that and you present every fear, every worry to God, that is when the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart. But here's the thing, rejoicing and praying and thanking is not an occasional thing that you do in life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna break it down for you, okay? There's no way you can break the power of fear in your life if praying or prayer is an occasional thing that you do. 
Maybe it's you do sometimes when you're really overwhelmed, but you kind of just live your life without really praying or without really rejoicing or without really thank, thanking God. What Paul is saying is you gotta, you got to become fluent in the peace of God. And the way you do that is you got to practice. you got to practice prayer. you got to practice being with Jesus. you got to take your fears and worries and just give it to God. I love this in First uh, Peter chapter 5. Just two verses I want to read, if we can throw that up there. Verse 6, Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And then he says, casting, I love this, casting or throw, casting all your anxieties. Anxieties are those things that you were never designed to bear. You were never designed to carry your fears and your anxieties. Casting all your anxieties on him because what? He cares for you. So, so Peter, he, he talks a little bit about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. In fact, humility is the art of turning away from yourself and putting Jesus back into focus or into your focus. Many people think that when I humble myself and when Peter says you gotta humble yourself, that we gotta somehow do some weird stuff like we ask God to like crush us, like make me a worm, right? Make me just humble me, make me feel disgusting about or disgusted about myself. People have weird thoughts about what humility is all about. Humility is not a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing. Peter says the way you humble yourself, start thinking um, less of yourself or whatever, thinking, not obsessing about yourself, the way you do that is you got to throw every care and every burden onto Jesus. It's a positive thing. When we throw every care and burden onto Jesus, we are practicing humility. Love it, because behind worry, behind fear, is this desire to be godlike. The reason why we worry is because we want control. And the reason why we want control is because we want to act like God. And the way we humble ourselves is we just go to God in prayer and we give him all the control back. Come on, I think we just gotta be honest with ourselves. We can't, I'm, me, maybe you're different. I can't control my dog. I can't tr control my kids. I certainly can't control my wife, right? Anyways, let's move on. We can't control our circumstances. Come on, you gotta be honest. You can't control, you're not in charge. You were never designed to control your life. You were designed as a human to live from a place of dependence on Jesus himself. And that is why prayer is all about humility. It's based from, from an assumption that you're not in charge and you gotta give the control back to God. So then Paul says in verse eight, and we're gonna close here, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think, everyone say think. Think about these things. See, the reason why we got a worry problem is because we have a thinking problem. Thinking has consequences. What you think about has a causal effect on your life. You feed your mind with ugly things, you're going to get an ugly life. Can I get an amen? You feed your mind with beautiful things, 
with excellent things, with praiseworthy things, you're going to get the peace of God. What Paul is saying, he says, okay, this is your way into the peace of God. What you can't do is just wait for a feeling. You can't wait for this subjective sense of well-being, right? And then once you get like what we would call maybe or what we would mischaracterize as the peace of God, then we can start thinking right thoughts about God. What Paul is saying is if you want to enter into the peace of God, you got to start with thinking right thoughts about God. you got to start thinking about the beautiful things. Can I get an amen? The praiseworthy things. And, and I, I love this because Paul is a creation theologian. And what he's saying is that this world, even though this world has been spoiled by evil itself, this world is still charged. It's still flooded with beauty and goodness. God has not abandoned the planet. Come on. Our home is not some disembodied place we call heaven. Our home is new heavens, new earth. God is at work in our world. God is at work in our lives. Can I get an amen to this? And because he's at work, we can, and we think about this, we can enter into the peace of God. I have found that when I'm worrying about something or I'm discouraged about something, that if I, if I think about what I'm thinking about and I trace it all the way back to like its roots, realize that my thinking has been hijacked by negativity. The reason why we worry is because we're thinking about the wrong things. And so what Paul is saying is, okay, this is the way you enter into God's peace. Start thinking about all the beautiful things. Let your mind, let your mind be filled. Feed your mind with the splendor of God's goodness, his promises, and then you'll enter into God's peace. And then Paul ends in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. He says practice. Everyone say practice. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Not that you'll have the peace of God. You'll actually have the God of peace. Practice these things. Practice. The more you practice feeding your mind with good thoughts, the thoughts that uh, come from God himself. The more you reject um, old, ugly caricatures of God, worn out thoughts about God. God, you're absent. God, you don't care. God, I'm in a situation that somehow lies outside your victory of your son. You start meditating on those thoughts. You You don't practice thinking about the beautiful, the true, the praiseworthy, the excellent. I have an assumption the God of peace will slowly remove himself from you. This is fascinating. He goes, practice these things. Practice feeding your mind with beauty and God's word and excellent things, and the God of peace will be with you. For example, my, uh, it would have been like 16 years ago, there was a guy who was really straightforward. He came up to me. Um, I, I, don't, I don't even remember his name. I don't even kind of remember what he looks like. He came up to me and he said, uh, Chris, he knew my name, and he goes, I just, I just got to be honest, I just don't like you. I mean, I was stunned. I'm like, how can anyone not like me, right? <laughs> I don't know if he had a problem with redheads. I mean, he, and he didn't even explain. He just like, I was like kind of shocked. I'm like, all right, um, and your point, you know? He didn't have a point. He just kind of laughed. And, and so I, I remember I made it, made it my, my goal 
to win him over as my friend. So I spent a couple months just, you know, encouraging him and saying nice things. And he would just, he kept on saying just like the craziest stuff. Like somehow his mind got hijacked and he thought I was like a psychopath and I hated cats and I love the Dallas Cowboys and ah, you're right. Um, and then about, it's about two months into me trying to win him over as a friend, I realized, man, this guy, whew, I don't think he's ever going to like me. I'm like, and, and so I got to this point where I'm like, okay, um, I'm just going to, I love him. He wants to change his mind about me. That's great. But I'm just going to have to give him over to his caricature of me. I'm just going to have to remove myself. Not that I don't like him anymore or don't care for this guy. He just, he obviously has an issue. And I, I kind of think this is what Paul is talking about. He says, if you practice feeding your mind with the beauty of God, what you'll find is that you'll be right in the presence of the God of peace. You see, God's relational. And I think the more we practice thinking about worry, and worry again is rooted in this assumption or this belief that God is absent, that God doesn't care, right? That this world is filled with ugly things. And yeah, there are ugly things in our world. But if you practice fear or you perfect the art of being worried, right? You become fluent in worry and anxiety. I think there's a point where, and God loves you so much, but he will have to remove himself, right? Let me, let me say this. God is the God of, of not confusion. He's the God of peace. Can I get an amen? And he loves you so much. And I think some of you, because you've allowed worry to dominate your life, you don't know the God of peace. Is because God doesn't love you? Is because God's not in charge? Is because God doesn't want to be with you? No. I think maybe God has, okay, I, I, I'm here and I, I, I love you, right? Uh, you see this in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, right? He leaves, he essentially tells his dad, I hate you. I, want you, I want you dead. Give me my inheritance. Give me my money. So he goes, he gets his money. He goes to a faraway country. He wastes all his money. The prodigal father doesn't run after him. It's interesting, kind of a strange part of the story. The prodigal father, if you can call him that, gave the inheritance to his son. His son left, and the prodigal father, you see him waiting for his son to return. One day, the prodigal son comes to his senses, right? He's eating food, turkey sandwiches with, with pigs, right? And he goes, man, I had it better in my father's house. So he gets up, he changes, goes back to his father's house, and when the father sees him, everyone say sees him, when the father sees him, what does he do? He runs towards his son and embraces him. Embraces him. The point of the story is that the father is always, always waiting, always looking for us to return to him. He is the God of peace, and he wants to give you his peace. But in order for you to get into God's peace, you have to start thinking true thoughts. You have to start meditating on God's word. You gotta get the scripture, the promises of God in your heart. And when you do that, you will find yourself in the arms of your father. He loves you, can I get an amen? He doesn't want you to live a life of fear and worry and hopelessness. He is the God of peace and he won the victory over evil. But what we have to do is we got to make a decision to think right thoughts 
into God's peace. And when we do that, we will experience the God of peace in our lives. Can I get any man to that? I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.